You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. blessed to be here to gather around God's Word with you now, Um, but before we do that, I want to take a little poll because I love some crowdsourced information, okay? So get ready to raise your hand. Um, The first statement, if you agree with it, raise your hand when I say, I enjoy the classic board game Monopoly. Anyone? There's a few takers. That's good. I'm not talking about McDonald's Monopoly. Um, although it is a brilliant marketing strategy, I think it puts roll up the rim to shame in terms of just the the experience is something else. Um, but no. Now, next, I'll, I'll ask you to raise your hand if you agree with the following statement: I strongly dislike the classic board game of Monopoly. Some of us. <laughs> Not a lot. And the rest of us are in the middle, right? Maybe you're more neutral. But I remember talking to a friend as a kid, and they said, yeah, my my grandma loves to play games with us, but she refuses to play Monopoly. And I said, why? And and he said, because she she says that Monopoly is all about money and greed, right? And so people just get get so weird when they play it. I think for some, some of us, Monopoly resembles reality a little too closely, right? So it's hard for us to enjoy. If this is you, might I suggest Monopoly Junior? Um, <clears throat> because there are way less rules, the bank is loose with the money, and um, if you have the opportunity to play it with a three-year-old, it's, it's wild. It's, it's so much more fun than regular Monopoly with adults. Okay? Um, <laughs> so this little bit about board games is going to make sense, I, I promise. When, when we read this morning's passage, uh, from 1 Corinthians. The church in 1 Corinthians apparently is having issues with money and or property. We actually don't know which one it is, but there is a conflict that the Apostle Paul is addressing. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open to Paul's letter. Uh, 1 Corinthians, I'll be in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8 says... If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters... Do not appoint your judges those who have no standing in the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes against brother in court, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this against brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. 
Friends, the Christian life is not a game of Monopoly. The Christian life is not a game of Monopoly. And, and, and this is good news for those of us who hate the game, right? Um, because in the kingdom of God, life is not supposed to resemble the worldly systems of wealth and conflict. God is not rich Uncle Pennybags, the guy with the monocle and the round head. That's not God. I could talk about that for a long time, but I won't. <laughs> but the problem we're discovering is that while this is true, that life is not a game of monopoly, um, the Christian church in Corinth has forgotten this fact. Paul's frustration with the church is essentially that they aren't good at living this new life they've received in Jesus, at least in this case. Right? They're obviously not united in that love of Christ, but rather they're fighting over the rules of the game. Their behaviors betray their identity. And this is something that Pastor Greg preached about last week in, in his amazing sermon on the sexual ethics in the church as well. Their Paul is deeply frustrated because he knows these people are alive in Christ. He knows that they're saved, but they're not living like they are. And it's not just that their morals are a little bit compromised. They're a lot compromised. Even the world is raising its eyebrows at what this church is doing. I want to talk about verses 1 to 3 really quickly because Paul continues to imply that the Christians will judge the world. and, and like Why would they judge the world if they can't get along in trivial things? And this may sound a little strange to us. What Paul is referring to is the prophetic tradition uh, in the book of Daniel where it says that, uh, Daniel says, I was watching and a horn waged war against the Holy One. So this is a prophetic, uh, apocalyptic picture of the end times and evil fighting against uh, God's righteousness, prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the Holy Ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the Holy Ones took possession of the kingdom. So God's people are ruling with God. And Jesus teaches about this as well in Matthew and Luke. Matthew 19 says, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And again in Luke 22, I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And finally, the Apostle Luke, in his apocalyptic vision that we call the book of Revelation, Jesus says this, To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Paul is not implying that Christians have the right to necessarily be judgmental. We've already said this, right? But rather that in the future, Christians will be ruling in some way, in the, the, the justice of the kingdom. This is great, but it's also disappointing for Paul because he sees the Corinthian church and their inability to behave themselves over trivial things. And so he's saying, if that's how you're behaving now, what, what about in the future when you're called to this justice that will be much bigger? Paul sees a divided church and a divided church is one that is not prepared to rule in glory with Jesus. They can't handle their own conflicts. In fact, they're dragging them out into the streets. 
and it's not good. Something that I read in today's passage that I want to repeat is that the problem isn't so much that conflict exists within the church. That's not the main issue, although it's not ideal. We don't want conflict, but that's not what Paul is freaking out about. But rather, it's how the conflict is being handled. Right? So conflict in the church is not ideal, but the mishandling of it is what Paul's really steamed about that we need to learn from. So the Corinthian church in this passage is a bad example of, of handling conflict in the church. And uh, no surprise, Jesus spoke to this as well. Jesus is God and he's also human. And so in that divine combination, Jesus knew that his church, full of uh, sinners in the days to come, would have conflict. And so Jesus actually outlines an incredibly practical a step-by-step program, if you will, for what to do when we face conflict. In Matthew 18, he says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And if he doesn't pay attention, then tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, then let him be a Gentile or tax collector to you in other ways. You've done what you can, and and it's out of your hands. And truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if uh, two on earth agree about any matter and pray for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there with them. So Jesus, as well, acknowledges that Christians will unfortunately uh, sin against one another. The church will not be perfect in this age. And he speaks to that. But the important part today is how we respond when we are sinned against or when we are in conflict with Christian siblings. So there's the question. How do we respond when someone wrongs us? when our brother or sister breaks the rules. And so long as we're still living this game of monopoly that we think is life, there are lots of inappropriate responses. If you've ever played with your siblings, just think back, okay? When my brother breaks the rules, I can blow up, I can flip the table, or freak out because I'm not the one that messed up. It was him, and it's affecting me, and so I have the right to be angry. I'm going to ruin the game for everyone, and there's pieces flying everywhere. It takes forever to clean up. That's one response. Get really angry and blow up. Or there's the flat-out quitters, right? As soon as the rules are broken, I'm done with this. I'll walk out. You hurt me. It's over, right? You'll find me in the room next to us with my yo-yo playing by myself because I don't want to play Monopoly with you anymore. You broke the rules, I'm out. And last but not least, there are the parent callers <laughs> who, will, who will get dad involved to make sure that everything is fair and square at the first instance, at the first whiff of injustice. And I just want to say, as a dad, 
I don't actually really care if my kids fight once in a while because they're gonna. It's unrealistic for any parent to think that their kids won't fight. But what would do my heart good, what I would love more than anything, is to not hear, Dad, as soon as they're doing this, but rather to overhear a discussion in which they are starting to work things out amongst themselves instead of immediately insisting that I referee the problem, right? So these are all silly, somewhat childish responses, very common in the game of Monopoly, but also common in life, right? And so as Christians, there's the contrast that I'll repeat. You can say it with me if you want. Life is not a game of Monopoly. The Christian life is not a game of Monopoly. In fact, it isn't a game at all, right? It's not silly. It's not trivial. This life in the kingdom is really important. It's really important. So when we are faced with conflict, our response to that situation must show that we take the life seriously because we understand that there's more at stake than a silly game winning or losing, right? And so the way that we respond to being wronged is an incredibly important and very difficult learning process that we will go through inevitably. And so I'm grateful that God is taking us there this morning in the scriptures. Um, really quickly, there's two main reasons or things that Paul highlights for us in the situation of the Corinthian church about handling conflict. Two ramifications, and I don't know which is worse. Uh, they're both bad. The first issue with the Christian dispute is that the world is watching us. The world is watching us, right? I, this is obvious, but I think sometimes we think that Christian unity is just so that we can get along and have an enjoyable experience amongst ourselves and be happy, right? And that's, that's great, but Christian unity actually serves a greater purpose than internal harmony within the church. Unity is a testimony to the watching world. It's a testimony to the world. Now, to my knowledge, those who are outside the church are not exactly attracted to a bickering family. You know what I'm saying? Like, people will say things like, if you Christians can't get along, if you guys are so miserable within the church family, don't invite me to the party because I don't want to come. It sounds like a bad time, right? They'll walk past our doors and go down the street, hopefully to another church, but quite possibly to another religion altogether because of Christian conflict. This is bad. Instead of this, Paul teaches us in Philippians 2, he says, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. So you see, when we live in harmony, it isn't just for you and me to enjoy it's a shining light to the world who needs what we have, who needs community, 
that will bring healing and love instead of more badly handled conflicts. So our unity, or lack thereof, is a strong message to the world. And it is the first reason that we have to handle conflict well in the church from Paul this morning. And now the second reason, uh, an obvious one, but again, Paul highlights that a badly handled conflict harms God's children, the church family. Badly handled conflict hurts us. I want to reread verse 7 and 8 because I really think this is the kicker of what Paul is trying to say. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Sometimes we place more value on being right than being in relationship. Sometimes we place more value on being right than we do on being in relationship. And no, these aren't mutually exclusive, but it's so easy to become imbalanced towards the one. What this means is that when we're offended, that offense can overshadow what actually matters, right? See, Paul says that when all we care about is winning an argument, we've already lost. If that's where you're at, it's over and you both lose. The big picture is supposed to be our love for one another. But if we are set on getting our own way at all costs, then we're defeated and it doesn't matter what the outcome is. So I don't know who needs to hear this today, but I know I do. There are more important things in life than being right. There are more important things than our personal sense of correctness. This is easy to say, and of course we know it's true, but it's incredibly difficult to put into practice, especially when our feelings are hurt and when we are justified in whatever we're feeling because we've been wronged and so on. So again, conflict is... Um, seems to be unavoidable, but how we handle it matters very much to the world who's watching and as well to the health of ourselves, to the church body. So let me offer just a few short suggestions for our attitudes when we handle conflict. Again, I've already read Jesus' very reasonable process of how to handle it, but I'll just comment on that or suggest some things that are postures, attitudes, mindsets that will help us when we do um, conflict with one another. When Christians face conflict, uh, first of all, this is kind of what we've already been talking about, it's incredibly important that we maintain the correct perspective. Right? Paul taught us that we've already lost the fight when we care more about that issue than about the bigger picture. He, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, when we don't have the big picture, all we think about is what the other person has done, what they deserve for justice, and so on and so forth. But reading a passage like this one reminds me of the good news that, yes, God is just, and he will judge 
that person for the thing that they've done. But he's also going to judge me. (laughs) And my side of the conversation is also flawed and, and, and sinful and incomplete. Right? And compared to God's judgment, my own judgment is, is nothing. I don't see everything as perfectly as he does or as he will on that judgment day. So compared to his judgment, my judgment in this scenario must defer, right? I, I must understand that his is perfect and mine is not. And I will stand before his throne just like all the rest of us. So this is humbling when we handle confrontations because it takes us out of the judgment seat, which we don't belong in, and it puts God there. And suddenly we remember that God is sovereign and he's just. And this is good. So we have to have a big picture rather than obsess about the little thing that we're facing. And the next attitude that we can adopt is to take responsibility for our own stuff. Take responsibility for what is mine. You see, it's easy to confuse this because our relationships interconnect us. What we do affects one another. We are not separate from each other. We're not islands. But that doesn't mean that you control me or I control you. You can't make me do anything. I can't make you do anything. And if, I, if we do think that way, that's called manipulation. And it's, it's wrong. So in an offense, I need to focus on what I can control, what I am responsible for. And you know what? As, when we do this, it's actually relieving because we see that it's, it's a pretty small amount of things, right? There's not that much that we do have control over, but it is my responsibility in the situation. And this is important because, once again, it allows us to be humble and honest with ourselves or with others about our part in whatever the conflict may be. And we can release the parts that don't belong to us. You see, I can't make anybody repent, but I can repent. Right? I can't make anyone forgive me, but I can choose to forgive them. I can't make anybody love me, but I can love them. You see what I'm saying here? So we take responsibility for what we can do. We let go of the rest, as hard as that can be. And the added byproduct, one of the good things that happens when we do this is then we do stop blaming others for the things that they've done and trying to control things that are outside of our control. And instead, we find constructive solutions to problems. And when we think about what we can do, and we move in that direction. So in conflict, we maintain a big picture. We take ownership of our thoughts and actions and behaviors. And third, and possibly most importantly, we bring our issues to the Lord. We bring them to God. We pray about them. We spend time in his word. And as we do this, we gain the supernatural ability to find a way forward and to even bless those who hurt us. When we worship, we remember that we serve a God of justice, and this is good. When we worship, we remember that we serve a God of grace and praise him for his grace. And we lay our conflicts before God and we understand and remember the way that God dealt with our wrongs, which was going to the cross for us. And I can tell you from experience over and over again 
that the Holy Spirit is faithful to minister to us and show us the right way when we are facing these problems when we bring them before God. Let's say that you are struggling with something and you make the wise choice to pick up your Bible and you flip it open and you accidentally turn to Matthew 5 randomly because you're bringing this to the Lord for his help. You might read something like this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, when your brother breaks the rules, you get to do whatever you want because you can get even. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. The Corinthian church surely forgot this particular passage about when someone wants to sue you because they're suing each other for all they're worth. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. When we come to Jesus with the conflicts we face, it makes no sense that we would uh, instead take them out into the world and have someone try to solve our problems for us because Jesus has offered us a very different way of handling things. And again, you see how important it is that when we take what Jesus says and apply it, the result is that we resemble our Father. We embody the identity of this new life in Christ when we practice these things. He says, you may be, we do this so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, this isn't to say that Christians should never get legal help, that Christians shouldn't... Um, pursue justice or anything like that, or, or, or always allow you know, bad situations to happen or withstand abuse or anything like that, that isn't what Jesus is saying. But it is about our hearts towards our enemies and, and that uh, love that we are to have instead of hate. You've heard it said an eye for an eye, but Jesus says no more. So we bring our problems to Jesus. We bring our conflicts to the Lord. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for us. That's the only thing that unites us is Jesus and what he's done. Christian brotherhood is a spiritual and not human reality. In this, it differs from all other communities. And so in good situations and not so good situations, we mustn't ever lose sight of what Jesus has done for us. We cannot forget that our Father has been generous with us, not only to permit us to come to him, 
but to pay the cost for our sins in order to make things right, to forgive us. And so by bringing our lives to to the Lord, even this morning, the cross allows us, it compels us to forgive those as we have been forgiven for our sin. Though we will struggle within ourselves and within our community for the time being, I thank God for the cross because it frees us of sin permanently, ultimately, eternally, but also in our situations here and now. So let us seek the Lord and to find his way that will lead us into this unique community that handles problems very differently than we did before we knew Jesus. Let us understand that our forgiveness came at a, at a cost to God, the life of his son, our savior, Jesus. And in this, let us be willing to, again, forgive brothers and sisters for things done presently or in the past in the same way that God has forgiven us and, and his Holy Spirit will empower us to do this as we need Taking communion is a corporate expression of what we're talking about, of this union with Jesus, but also with one another. We take communion to express and experience what Bonhoeffer was talking about, that sole factor which unites us, and that is what Christ has done for you and for me. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, later on, Paul says in chapter 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. Why? Because we share this one bread. You see, we are not united by our human similarities. We are not homogenous and all the same. We are different and diverse. But together now, we unite to say that Jesus is Lord, that his blood shed on the cross, his body broken on the cross, are the one and only way to be saved. Let's pray. God, I praise you for the way that you have made us right before you. Thank you for loving us and for paying the cost for our sin, Lord, a debt that we could never pay. You have shown us what grace looks like, and we receive it today with wonder and thanksgiving. And at the same time, I ask, Lord, for your spirit to convict us, to lead us towards a truer expression of that grace to one another. Lord, to guide us towards unity as we're talking about in 1 Corinthians. Father, forgive us for not handling our conflicts with maturity, with love, with your presence, but instead attempting to do it on our own. Forgive us for the times when we do not act in love towards one another, when we disobey those commands of Jesus, Lord. 
forgive us. Let our hearts be made new by the power of your spirit so that we would truly be a community that the world is amazed at for its love. God, let our unity be a testimony not to our greatness, but to yours. We want to glorify you in this place, God, in our lives, in our relationships, in our work, the things we do, Lord. We want to lift you up, to display you to others, to see. So again, God, show us the ways that we may need to change or adjust or new things that we may need to do even today to do this better, to reflect your image in us. Lord, we we surrender. We give you our lives. We give you our hearts and our praise now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.